inside of your announcement sheet, you will find an outline that you can use as we go through our study this morning. And once you get that outline out, if you'll open your Bibles up to John 13, we're going to be looking uh, primarily at this text uh, this morning that, that Roger has just read for us. And while you're doing that, uh, just a reminder, uh, singles, if uh, you did not make it to class this morning, uh, you may have forgotten that there is going to be a potluck for your class. It's going to be in the small kitchen today, and everyone is invited uh, from the singles class to go in to be a part of that, and just a reminder as, uh, as you're getting ready for our study this morning. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to draw near You and for You to draw near to us. Our desire is for You, Father, to take care of every need that we have in this life. And You, Father, are the One who, in great compassion and mercy and grace, have restored us to Your presence through the love of Your Son and His sacrifice and His mercy that is great toward us. And as we study, Father, as disciples and conforming to His image and walking in His steps, we pray that we take very seriously the words that are before us this morning And that we, we literally take them into us, Father, in such a way that it changes us. And we pray, Father, that in so doing, that we will bring great glory to You in the way that we live our lives as light in this community. To this end, we pray once again that You give us eyes to see and ears to hear it. Father, thank You for the life of Jesus. And thank You for His death. And thank You for His resurrection. And we're thankful, Father, for the hope that it gives us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have heard me reference on a number of occasions over the years um, a fellow by the name of Rodney Stark who is a, a very well-known church historian uh, here in Texas. He teaches at Baylor University. He has written a couple of books about what the church looked like in the early years of Christianity in the large urban metropolitan areas. And there's a, a statement that every time I read it, I'm just completely astonished by it. And I want to read it again. It's one that you've heard me say before, but I read before. It's, it's one that I want to read again as, uh, as prelude, as preamble to our thoughts this morning out of John 13. Rodney Stark writes, in light, in the context of how Christians changed the, the urban settings, the cities of the first and the second and third centuries through their ministry, through their message, through teaching the gospel and living it, he writes, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationship able to cope with many urgent urban problems. The cities filled with the homeless and impoverished Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, 
Christianity offered effective nursing services. No wonder the early Christian missionaries were so warmly received in, that, in those cities. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Read that again. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Once you read a statement like that and, and, and think about the magnitude and the scope of the difference that the Christians made in the first century and all of those cities and how that carried through the first and the second and the third generation of all of those Christians through all those centuries and how by the time of Constantine you basically have a world because the cities have been evangelized and have been gospelized, you have a Christian world. Once you kind of get that scope somewhere, your mind around that, it asks a question. Your mind asks the question, why did they do it? And, and how did they do what it is that they did? And the answer in part is feet. References to feet are all over the Bible. They're all over the Bible. In fact, as I begin to cite some of these, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The Bible condemns over and over again, especially in places like Proverbs, feet that are swift to do what? Malice or to do evil, Right? If you are put under somebody's feet, you are in their submission. There is a, a passage out of Isaiah chapter 52 that is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10 where Paul says, How beautiful are the what? feet of those who bring good news. Now the opposite of beautiful feet are disgusting, dirty feet. And that's really what our text, the text in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 15, it actually goes a little bit longer than that, but the text that Roger read this morning, that's what the text is about. Feet. Dirty, disgusting feet. Now when you read the commentaries and you listen to a lot of sermons on John chapter 13, you get a lot of different perspectives on what that passage, that chapter is all about. Some say it's about humility. Some say it's about building community. Some say it's service. I think all of that is, is true in part. What I would suggest this morning is that the passage is about love. What is it that Jesus is... is what's going on in Jesus' heart at the beginning of that passage? John tells us that having loved His own, He what? He loved them to the end. Later in the text, He says, you know, you've heard, love one another. But a new commandment I give you, love each other as I have loved you. All men will know that you're My disciples if you want. Love one another. Now, there is great irony in this text. This text about love. The disciples are not arguing about love. They're arguing about other, other kinds of things. And one of the parallel passages to what's going on in John chapter 13 is Luke chapter 22. And in Luke chapter 22, what you have the disciples doing is arguing over who's going to be the greatest. They're not really talking about who is going to go the extra mile when it comes to loving one of their brothers or one of their sisters or somebody that's in the village, what they're arguing over is that when Jesus gets into His kingdom, who is going to be the greatest? Now you know as well as I do that by the time you get to this place in Luke chapter 22 and in John's Gospel, you're down to the very last couple of hours of Jesus' life before He gets to the crucifixion. And the disciples at this point have given up everything. They've, they've left 
everything that they basically knew about life, everything that was safe, everything that was comfortable to them, they left it to follow Him and to be His, His disciples, to be faithful to the calling to follow Him and to be fishers of men. And what they're struggling with right now is they know that they are in Jerusalem. They know that, that, that the, the powers that be, whether they're religious or political or whatever, are looking and seeking ways to put Jesus to death. And what they're hoping is that in the next few moments, Jesus is going to take control of the situation by taking control of the temple and taking control of Jerusalem. And that He would establish His kingdom. That He would go to the apogee of His power. And so Luke 22 tells us that these disciples have something on their minds and it's different from what Jesus has on His mind. In fact, in verse 26, He has to say to them, because of this argument they're having over who's going to be the greatest, He says, Who is it that is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who, what? Serves. Now the reason that they need to hear this, and the reason that Jesus is stepping out and addressing it, is because they are fully vested in the world's view, the, the, the culture's view of power. And this passage in John chapter 13, believe it or not, is the most unabashed, barefaced contradiction of that view of power that is imaginable. Think about the context. In a very short period of time, Jesus is going to be exalted to the highest place. He is going to be exalted to the right hand of God because He stepped off of the precipice and plummeted into the deepest of the depths. Jesus very soon is going to be exalted because He has allowed Himself to be betrayed and to be mocked and to be tortured, to be flogged, to be spat upon and finally executed publicly when He had the means for that not to happen. Now you know as well as I do that the world view of the world that we live in has no place in that, for that, that kind of thinking. And in their worldview, the disciples, as they're sitting around this table and they've been debating over who is going to be the greatest and who's going to sit where on all of those thrones, they don't have a place for that kind of thinking either yet. But again, our culture is going to struggle with the meaning of Jesus' kingdom. Our culture struggles with those great reversals of the kingdom of God that Jesus over and over again teaches His disciples and says, if you want to be My disciple, this is the kind of life that you have to live. You have to look out for number one is what our culture says, where the culture of the kingdom of God says, if you want to be first, then you have to be what? Last. In our culture, it's win, baby, win. In the culture of the kingdom, it's if you want to be great, then you have to become a servant. In our culture, it's do unto others before they do unto you. In the culture of Jesus' kingdom, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, then turn to him to the left as well. When Jesus calls people, human beings, to be his disciples and to follow in his footsteps, he is calling them to a life that is much more deep and goes, and goes so much more profoundly deep in, in, in life and in culture than the pithy, pious bumper sticker theology that we find in the United States today. 
Jesus is calling for His Gospel. His Gospel, not just to get stuck in your mind as, 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 a, as a, just a value system and a, and a way to determine black and white at times, but to get all the way down into your heart and to go through your heart to your soul until it changes you from the very core of your being. And when that Gospel that He calls you to and you understand the, the, the cost of your salvation and of the forgiveness that comes to you, that brings you back into the presence of God, that's why you repent. And not just once, but for the rest of your life, you find yourself changing the direction of your life, adjusting the course of your life, adjusting the direction so, so that you find yourself off course and going back into the direction of God Himself. These disciples had already heard Jesus say, Matthew chapter 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what, church? But to serve. He came not as the Prince of Heaven to be served, but to serve other people and to give His life as a ransom for many. Well, they had heard Him say that a lot. But now at the end, He's going to give them a visual. With all of His status and with all of His power, Jesus is going to get up from that place of honor at the table where He's residing over that last meal with Him. And He strips down to the point where He only has a towel around His waist. And He gets down on His knees and He washes their feet. It was one of the most menial, demeaning things that you could do in the ancient world. It was, in fact illegal to make certain levels of slaves do that or servants do that in the ancient world. So, so demeaning was it. We think, look at those feet. Disgusting. Smelly. I don't want in my imagination to go where I think those feet have been. And yet, Jesus says that there is something in this washing of feet, these kind of feet, that helps us to understand what life in the kingdom of God is like. Let me give you a couple. The first is this, it imitates the incarnation. At the beginning of this passage, we're told that Jesus knew that He was going back to the Father. He had come from the Father, now it's time to go back to the Father. What is that a reference to? The incarnation, the not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, but in making Himself nothing by taking on the form of a human being, and not just a human being, but a servant, He what? Humbled Himself. And so here in John 13, at this Last Supper with His closest friends, Jesus gets up from His place of honor at the table in order to stoop down and to wash their feet. What happens to His honor? What happens to His honor? It takes a hit. I listened to a lot of sermons. Some years ago I heard a sermon from a, one of my favorite preachers that had a, an incredibly unique way of, of, of illustrating what is happening on here, a really unique way of, of talking about what it meant for Jesus' honor to leave that place and to do the work of a slave, of a servant, what it meant for him to take a hit. Now, it's a football illustration. A couple of years ago, Jordan and I, having lunch at the house, watching a replay of the Texas A&M Duke game when Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel, is playing quarterback. 
And one of the things, even though you may not be a, a, an Aggie fan, one of the things you have to appreciate about uh, John Manziel is that he never gives up on a play. And on one particular play, there's the, a, a Duke linebacker, there's a, a lineman that is going after him. Manziel holds on to the ball just an extra second longer in order to throw a reception down, down the field just as he's being crushed by a defensive player. Now what has he done? He's taken a hit for the team. A great hit for the team. And why did he do that? Why did Manziel take that hit? Because there was sin in the offensive line. Somebody missed a block. Somebody missed an assignment. Somebody called the wrong blocking play. Or somebody just got beat off the ball or out-muscled at the line of scrimmage. Maybe it was just a bad recruit. But whatever the reason for the lapse in the play, it's, just, it's complex. But regardless, there is a cost that has to be paid. And who will absorb the lapse in order for the team to move the ball down the field? And that's what Manziel chose to do. Now, let's step out of football and talk about us. Many of you know John Harp, longtime minister, youth minister, and now preacher for the Sunset Ridge Church of Christ church that is heavily involved with the poor in San Antonio, John, in, in working with agencies that deal with the homeless and with the poor and impoverished people in our area, they estimate that there are 500 homeless people on the far east end of the Austin Highway, just right here. It's estimated 500 homeless people. And we can get upset about that and, and we could say this is not the way that it should be. I mean, how could this happen? This is America for crying out loud. But we know that it's a reality and because of a lapse somewhere, because of a lapse somehow, a complex lapse, there are people whose lives are not in great shape. And the question is, who is going to take the hit to see the problem resolved? Now, we can say, not my problem. It's their fault. Bad choices. Don't raise my taxes in order to pay for it. But we think about John chapter 13 and we ask, who's going to take the hit and absorb the cost? And it's not just that end of the socioeconomic spectrum. There were some years ago had a, 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 an incredibly affluent couple, not members of our church, not members of any church that I know of, lived in the dominion, had a live-in maid, had, had, had cars that I could, could, could basically, if they sold the cars, could take care of the debt of, 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 of a small country. And here are people that are educated and here are people that are successful in business, but they have come into my office week after week after week for an hour to two hours, sometimes for three hours. And their life was such a wreck. And the things that they had done to each other, both verbally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, what they had done to each other's health was appalling. The point is, is that we're surrounded. We are surrounded by people 
regardless of how much money they make and, and the clothes that they wear and the cars that they drive, we are surrounded by people with dirty, disgusting feet. And Jesus' way of loving people was to see the brokenness of humanity and to say that He will take the hit. That He will absorb the cost. Jesus says, let it be Me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. Jesus says, It's not My fault their feet are dirty, but I will stoop down and wash their dirty, scraped up, calloused, smelling ugly feet. I will make it My job. And in essence, it's a picture of what it means for Jesus to leave heaven in order to take upon Himself all the sins of the world and to take the hit. John chapter 13, those first 15 verses, it's, it's a visual play of what the incarnation was like. When Jesus divested Himself of all of His glory in order to become like us, and not just like us in our humanity, but to become a servant, and not just a servant, but a humble servant who was humble to the point that He died on the cross to save us from our sins, even when He had all of the resources for it not to be so. Because of the lapse, whatever you wanted to call it, but because mainly because of our need. And He wasn't just hit by linebackers or 350-pound linemen. Jesus took the hit of the sins of the world upon His back and He suffered the full extent of its misery and He suffered the full extent of its cruelty. He left His place at the right hand of God, at the, the place of honor in heaven. He left that place in love to take care of a need that was not His fault. And when we begin to do that, it will also, as a second point, communicate compassion. Communicates compassion. I played football for a lot of years. I, I don't really remember a lot of those years, but I remember the very first uh, season. I, in fact, I remember the very first game that I ever played in up in Wichita Falls, Texas. I played for the Mustangs and was uh, an offensive guard and didn't really know the rules. Uh, you know, we were kind of the... The way that football was set up back then, uh, you had the older players who got most of the coaching and the young guys, the first-year guys. We were basically just out there. We were kind of, uh, we were the fodder for all of the hitting. You know, we just stood there and let people run into us as little third graders. And I remember the very first time I got into a game, I didn't know the rules. And I also didn't, you know, the first time you go in, you, especially as a third grader, man, I was a sweet little kid. You may not believe that, but I had a heart of gold. I, did, I couldn't hurt anybody. And I didn't understand the speed of the game, even at third grade level. And very first play, guy blew right past me and, uh, and tackled the quarterback. I thought, well, that's not cool. The coach is yelling at me on the sideline. So the very next play, believe it or not, third grade, we're going to throw a pass. Not very smart call, you know, third grade team. But I decided that uh, it was time to exact some revenge. So it's a pass play. I'm a lineman. As soon as that ball is snapped, I run downfield as fast as I can. Offensive guard running downfield at a pass play. And I drill the first kid with a different jersey right in the back. I thought, man, well, I, just, I creamed that kid. That's awesome, man. I did what the coach wanted. And I saw that little yellow handkerchief laying on the ground. And the referee uh, walked over to me and said, son, that's called a clip. 
Now, first of all, it's a pass play. You can't go downfield. And number two, you can never hit anybody in the back. Old school football. I walked back to the huddle. There was no compassion. I was a little third grader with a heart of gold in the middle of a huddle of sailors. <laughs> Think back again to that Texas A&M Duke game. What would have happened to that lineman had Manziel not taken that hit? Had he not taken the hit, completed the pass, had not completed the pass and moved the ball downfield and later on scored? That lineman would have been blamed. He possibly would have been benched. He would have been a pariah. You know how it is in big-time Division I football. You miss a play. You get the quarterback hurt. The play is missed. It's your fault. Lives are made and changed. But in Manziel taking the hit and making the play, the lineman was freed up from bearing the brunt of his coach's wrath for that drive stalling in the middle of the field. Goes back to the huddle. And he's free. Someone has to take the hit for the sins of the world if we are going to be freed up from under the judgment that is coming, not because we've lost our milk money, but because of the sin against the Holy God. All of our lusts and all of our pride and selfishness and arrogance and oppressiveness the oppressive uses of our intellect and our talent, the hubris of it all, all of that has to be taken care of if we are going to be free and, out and be able to come out from under the judgment. Now, I don't know if I can do justice to the shock that came over the disciples that He, out of all of them, was the one who got up and washed their feet. I mean, they might have allowed a, a servant to wash their feet. Obviously, they, they would have been okay with that. They might have even washed each other's feet because they saw themselves as pure and maybe on the same level. And, and maybe, you know, I can, I can do something that, that is at least at a peer level and I'm not being pushed down too much. They might have even thought that it was a little bit of an honor to wash His feet since He is their Lord and Master. But for Him... To wash their feet when he's not coerced to do it, not owing them any kind of a free pedicure, but getting their feet washed as disgusting as a task as it was, that was their need. And I just can't help but think, church, that the image of Jesus kneeling at the feet of people who do not deserve his service. Do not deserve it. But get it anyway because of His love and His compassion for them. To free them up, it will radically, radically change your life forever. And you will come to understand that it's what disciples do. Jesus in verse 14 says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Jesus is saying that the washing of their feet by Him gives direction to the way that they are to live their lives every day after that. He says, Since 
I've taken the hit and I've stooped down and I've stripped down to the, to the, the towel around my waist and I've gotten my hands into the water and into your feet. You do the same for each other. Jesus is teaching us in His stooping down that He sees our greatest need and He is willing to do whatever it takes to take the hit in order for us to be free and to become everything that God has intended for us to be. Jesus would not let dirty feet get in the way of His loving His disciples in a way that would change their lives and alter the direction of their thinking from there on out. I mean, think about the kind of love that that is. It's illustrated for us in John chapter 13. You've heard me say this before, but I, you know, don't we just get so sick at how dumbed down the, the definition of love is in our culture and in the media? I mean, I, you just get so aggravated and you get so frustrated that, that people, it, it's astonishing what people believe. You, you look at a modern TV depiction of love, which is nothing more than I love you, which means I'm going to get whatever I can out of you. The love that I'm portraying in that culture is I want to own you. I, I want my needs met through you. Jesus' amazing kind of love says that whatever I need to do for you in light of your need and in light of the kingdom of God, I'm going to do. And this is where Peter comes in. Peter... I love Peter so much. Maybe it's because uh, there's, a, there's a, a little of that impetuous nature in me, the, the impulsiveness, uh, maybe sometimes saying things when, when I shouldn't, you know, putting my foot in my mouth. I, he cannot figure out why Jesus is doing this. Because he's really vested in his culture's idea of power. But the real reason that Peter can't figure this out is because he doesn't know the, the, the sin danger that he's in, that he's in dire straits. And it hasn't dawned on Peter that he needs a foot-washing Savior, one who is willing to humble himself to death on a cross. Peter doesn't want to be judged by, by God. Peter doesn't want to be in the position where he has to have his Lord and Savior, his Lord and Teacher, wash his feet. Don't wash my feet. You will never wash my feet. Peter struggles with the cross. You'll never die on that cross. Even if everybody else departs, I will die with you. I will never deny you. You see, Peter doesn't realize the dire straits that he's in, spiritually speaking. He does not realize that he needs that kind of a Savior. but he gets it later on. And Jesus has to draw it out of him and say, Peter, do you really love me? When you look at the cross, I, I love what Cody had to say, the communion devotional about the cross as we were getting ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. What authentic love. What mind-boggling love. What astonishing love. What appallingly mysterious love is portrayed in the cross. And if you boil it right down, the cross is God saying through Jesus that I love you and I'm willing to take this hit 
in order for you to be free, regardless of the lapse, but in order for you to be free. But he asks us the same question that Peter got. But do you love me? We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. And if our church can minister to you in any way, it may be through through hearing hearing about your life and helping you to understand the way that you come in contact with the grace, that gift of God that, that frees you up from sin and makes you His forever and gives you a home in eternity at His side. Or it may be that you're struggling with some aspect of your life and you need... You need the prayers of the church. You need the counsel of your spiritual leaders, your elders, your shepherds to help you get through the next couple of days or the next couple of hours or at least the next couple of decisions. Whatever it might be, our church is here to serve you. Let's stand and praise God together. The splendor of a King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice